everyone. Welcome to a brand new episode of the Genre Equality Podcast on the Genre Equality Channel. I'm Hitzer. I'm Hadi. I'm Aisa. Uh, lots to talk about this month. Um, four particularly big titles, um, including Disney Plus's The Book of Boba Fett, HBO Max's Peacemaker, mm-hmm. uh, Critical Roles, The Legend of Vox Machina on Amazon Prime, mm-hmm. alongside Demon Slayer's Season 3, Entertainment District Talk, are probably the four biggest things we'll be talking about this month. Mm-hmm. Um, alongside... Some stuff I'm going to be covering, covering on quick hits, including the second season of Race by Wolves, Roland Emmerich's latest disaster film where the moon falls onto the earth called Moonfall, oh, no. uh, Netflix's remake of the Texas Chainsaw Massacre, not remake, a sequel, I'm sorry, oh. um, and lots of other stuff. Um, I gotta say, like of all the things that I'm talking about on the screen, <laughs> yeah. mm-hmm. you know, um, things that you know were either movies or TV shows, I can safely say. I did not enjoy a single one this month. Um, this is the rare genre equality where I can't give a positive review for anything on screen, oh, yeah. with the exception of the poll list, which is I'll, I'll be talking about Saga and a couple of books that I read. So only the poll list are things that are good to me. Um, I don't know whether it's like coming off the high of Station Eleven, of currently watching um, Severance or Petite Maman and things like that, but. A lot of the stuff here just disappointed me. So for the main topics here, I'm just going to keep my mouth shut. <laughs> don't, don't kill the vibe. Um, and just let, like, let my co-hosts enjoy what, what they enjoy. Um, man, what's your favorite things uh, from, from this month? Uh, let's begin with you, Hadi. Like, um, just in general, uh, like, what did you enjoy this month? I mean, okay, for me, because I'm a Star Wars fanboy, so Book of sure. Book of Fat, even though I felt mm-hmm. it was a mixed season, mm-hmm. I, I still mm-hmm. enjoyed it. Yeah. Um, right. As a wrestling fan, you know, getting to see John Cena stretch his legs in Peacemaker, thought that was fun mm. too. Um, mm-hmm, and mm-hmm. for me, you know, Legend of Vox Machina, uh, mm-hmm. as a critical, uh, someone who has watched Critical Role for the past six years, you know, yep. um, having it come to life and all that stuff is kind of awesome. Yeah. So, yeah, yeah I mean, I might be looking through a lot of the shows through rose-tinted glasses, uh-huh. just mm. because, you know, I love all these projects regardless of Maybe how maybe how truly bad they are, or, or you know, or or I might be missing some things and all that lah. I think bad is an overstatement. Uh, I think a lot of the stuff I didn't enjoy was mediocre, me- medium. Um, uh, I would I wouldn't exactly call them bad, but okay. not not like great either lah. Uh, what about you, Isa? What were your favorites? Oh man, man. Uh, it it I I feel similar to you, hits. Um, as in I did enjoy some of it, but none of them were standouts. None of them were perfect. None of them were groundbreaking necessarily. Uh, mm-hmm. like Hardy, right? I'm a huge Critical Role fan. Uh, Legend of Mox Vakina is great, but it's not perfect. Um, mm. you know. Uh, likewise, I think like Demon Slayer, big fan, but uh, this season felt it wasn't one of the better seasons. Let's just put it mm. that way, right? Uh, out of the three that we've gotten so far, it's it's okay. Like a lot of stuff mm-hmm. is just okay, you know. Like it's nothing kind of yeah, bad. just okay lah. Yeah. Okay, yeah, yeah. Um, I don't mean to sound like, you know, they were all bad. I don't think bad is the right term okay. for any of them. I, I thought it was just okay, la, yeah. you know. But um, I think I frequently said that, like, I prefer something to be either very bad or very good. Okay <laughs> is, to me, the definition of wasting my time. Like, you're not, try- you're not trying if it's just okay. Yeah. Um, and a lot of this was just okay. La. But let's begin with, I think, the biggest title of the month. Sure. The Book of Boba Fett. Um, this is Disney's spin-off to The Mandalorian. We follow Boba Fett. Played once again by Tamara Morrison and Fennec Shan, played by Ming Na Wen, as they try to establish a criminal empire on Tatooine after disposing of Bit Fortuna. 
the show takes place in two timelines, similar to, I guess, Arrow's early seasons. Mm-hmm. The the first takes place in the present as we watch Boba Fett settle into his new role mm-hmm. as a daimyo crime lord handling business in a gangster western against rival groups vying for power in Tatooine's underworld. We also follow his flashbacks, telling the story of how he escaped the Salak pick, um, gets robbed by Jawas, is taken prisoner by Tusken Raiders before he earns their trust and becomes a member of the tribe and learns their way. Um, like Mando, I think Boba Fett draws thick on references. This is a kind of um, Dances with Wolves or Lawrence Arabia mm-hmm. uh, kind of thing that they were going for. And also like Mando, it's homages to classic films like um, The Untouchables or The Great Train Robbery or The Good, the good and Bad. And yeah, um, it's <laughs> actually what I enjoyed the most about the show, mm-hmm. what got me geeking mm-hmm. out, um, even more so than the Star Wars uh, lore Easter eggs. Uh, so this all sets up a giant battle for territory in true gangster show fashion as mm-hmm. Boba is forced to recruit some old friends like Mando and new friends like a badass Wookiee named Chrysanthemum. Mm-hmm. Um, there's a Rancor. Mm-hmm. Um, there's some mods from 1970s London. Um, <laughs> and they all help him battle the Pike Syndicate uh, and take over Tatooine. Um, let's begin with you, Hardy, who is probably like the uh, biggest Star Wars fan on the panel here. What do you think of the book of Boba Fett? Um... I would say that I was not disappointed. Okay. 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 So uh, clearly, I would say that is nowhere close in terms of, um, uh, in terms of how epic you know uh, Mandalorian season two was for me. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Boba Fett felt a little short of the mark because of the expectations we had coming out of book of Boba. Uh, sorry, of the Mandalorian season two, right? Yeah. And yep. so there were certain things that um, um, I felt um, didn't deliver as much as I thought it would. Mm-hmm. However, I kind of appreciated what Dave Filoni was trying to do in terms of um, changing the narrative for Boba Fett. Mm. I mean, the character Boba Fett is, has always been that quiet, you know, that that um, menacing, that um, um, that kind of anti villain slash anti hero kind of feel to it, yeah. For a long period of history, like throughout the, the comic books, throughout the 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 the, the movies and all that, so that there, there was a drastic shift in that I felt in 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 this in, uh, in this um series, and I felt that mm. it was justified in a way that they they tackled it through the Tuscan Raiders storyline, you know mm. how they they showed why he changed in the first place. Mm. However, you were setting up this whole thing, you know, where he took over <laughs> Jabba's palace and all that stuff. So you were expecting a bit of um, the Godfather light, you know? Yeah. I wouldn't say like full on you want to do this whole crime gangster thing, but a bit of that, la, which I felt was heavily missing. Mm-hmm. At the very least, give me Peaky Blinders, like Ex- not the Godfather. Exactly, you know? I'm not, exactly. I'm not expecting the greatest film of all time, but something. <laughs> exactly, yeah. you know? So I felt that part was a bit um, of a letdown, per se. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And... I, and the, the the character Boba Fett, I felt was hamstrung by a great supporting cast as well. Mm-hmm. Like uh, you have the Mando coming back, which made it into Mandalorian two point five. Yeah. Right. Yeah, the best part of the season. Exactly. You know. <laughs> yeah, I mean the spoilers are out there, like right. And so anyway, uh, the other thing is, uh, you also have a right hand woman who can fix everything for you. Oh yeah. Mm. You know. So like. He becomes hamstrung by and and you have Kersenton who is like this uh invincible warrior in the end, you know. So mm. a lot of these kind of uh side characters who like kind of overshadow you in a, in a, in your own series, like in that sense. Mm. 
Uh, you got Asuka Tano, Cat <laughs> Bean, Grogu, the list goes on. The list really Luke goes Skywalker, R two D two, uh, um, Amy Sedaris, Princess Carolyn. You know, <laughs> like all of them overshadowed uh Boba Fett. Yeah, a, yeah exactly. You know, from and, and on a full spectrum of things, from humor to action to um to intelligence. You know. Yeah, and to Easter eggs, so like mm. it, it becomes a, a a bit of a less of a Boba Fett story and a story about everybody else, mm. and I felt that was one of the issues I had with uh, the book of Boba Fett. Um, yeah, but I but because the, the side characters were so fun and all that, I still had fun with this series, lah. It's just yep, that yep. it's mistitled, I feel. Yeah, it should have been like Tales of the Mandalorian, something like or, that. Like, yeah, and and an anthology show or something yes, like that. Yes, I know? agree. Um, what about you, Isa? What, what do you think? Yeah. One of the biggest things going into the book of Boba Fett, right? Like, my impression of Boba Fett from the original um, trilogy is that oh, he has this strange reputation as being a fierce kind of bounty hunter. Mm-hmm. But all we ever see him do is bumbo stuff, mm. right? Um, and, you know, all the way until he gets swallowed by the Sarlacc, etc., etc. And I think, mm. like, his first inclusion into the TV series in Mando, right? Two, yeah, yeah. Uh, um, felt like they wanted to kind of like like Hardy mentioned, want to kind of like spark a change, right? Change the narrative for that. Like he's a bit more serious. You get to see more character arcs. He actually has proper like speaking lines and stuff like that. Um, but it f- a lot of it feels, and I mean, I haven't read the comic books involving him, so I mm-hmm. I can't say for certain. Um, but a lot of it feels like it's not earned. Right, like yeah. this reputation is not earned. So when we come into the show, and I'm expecting it, like, okay, you're gonna fill me in about all the parts about why he has this reputation, what mm. this change has been about, and all of that. I'm expecting that, but all I felt we really got is more bumbling. Right, he's not a great okay. bounty hunter. He's mm-hmm. not a great mercenary. Not a great leader. Right, mm-hmm. he's kind of none of those things, but he kind of takes himself a bit too seriously, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. And then Fennec just like Fennec is an um, the only person who's doing her fucking job, basically, <laughs> um, for that. So it felt as though again the focus on Boba Fett felt misplaced, uh, mm-hmm. in, in my opinion, right? Again, uh, all the scenes we got with uh with Din was you know the best stuff that we got, um. Yeah, I did. I, as as fun as the mods were, they weren't necessary, right? And it felt a bit out of place. Yeah, yeah. Like I, I feel like if you're riding, I, I mean, cybernetic mods aside, right? I love the fact that Thundercat is in it. I love the Me idea too. of a of a a, doc, a mod doctor. It's fucking cool. Um, but the mods themselves and their scooters just feel so out of place. Like it doesn't that, feel like they belong in, in this show. And then there and, was that one chase scene that just got me. I'm like, that is not a chase scene. No, yeah, yeah, exactly. Like it's like this cheap watered down chase scene, right? With these vehicles that you would immediately stand out on Tatooine, right? <laughs> like you, they are no way or form like an urchin gang that's going to supply you with information and all of that. People see you on their scooter, they're going to clock you and say like, mm-hmm. what's going on? Yeah, this is this is like, you know, when you watch Sons of Anarchy and you wondered how that gang managed to sneak up on people in those like loud Harleys. Yeah, uh, exactly, yeah. right? So, yeah. I mean, um, at, at the end of the day, I think it felt a little confused. And what compounded the situation was basically like the climax, right? At the mm-hmm. end of it, what has Boba done at the end of this series? Very honestly. So he comes into an empty throne room. All the negotiations are pretty much done by, by Fennec, right? And, you know, you 
don't do your job. You're you're not even like the figurehead that people want to kind of look up to. And at the end of it, when everything is resolved, you got people bowing to him and shit, right? Mm. But like he doesn't, you know, he's no Jabba for sure, right? Even if you want to do it out of respect for sure, uh, it just feels a little confused. Agreed. Um, mm. Yeah, and and I think. I think maybe Filoni and Gang didn't really quite know where to put these stories, you know, because uh, yeah. it's a bit wider than the Mandalorian law uh, would, would allow. Yeah. Uh, but at the same time, you know, it had its moments. There were fun kind of opportunities, but just like, I don't know, man. Where did you get your fearsome reputation from? This is what I don't understand. That's the issue again. A lot of the Dave Filoni things is one of the issues I always felt is that you needed background knowledge. So yeah. like if you've read the Bounty Hunter comics, yeah, then you understand. I you see. know, but then that can't be how you create a series, you know, yeah. where people are not expected to read, you know, a bunch yeah. of law before watching. Exactly. Mm-hmm. And yeah. and I think when we get into critical role, we will talk It'll about the same that thing also, yeah. problem as well. Right. So I didn't yeah. read the Bounty Hunter thing. Now now that, you know, Hardy's pointing me in that direction, I'll go and check it out and see whether or not that changes my opinion on things. Mm-hmm. But mm-hmm. yeah, it's very frustrating, I think, to wanna kind of like make Boba cool when yeah. he isn't. I feel like if they lean into the fact like he's a bumbling bumbling old, you know, bounty hunter that has things fall into his lap makes it way more entertaining yeah. and way more believable than what we got. Like, even some of the hand-to-hand combat stuff, some of the, like, very general, like, tactics and strategy. Oh, man, so annoying, so annoying. I, I feel like the rank <laughs> deserves more screen time than Boba did. <laughs> um, I'm, I'm going to argue that I feel like yeah. Boba Fett, this is like a devil's advocate argument, although I don't like the show. I feel like Boba Fett... To Filoni's credit, is actually very consistently written. Like you said, he has always been bumbling yep. and incompetent yep. and has an unearned reputation. Yep. Um, Boba Fett in the movies just stood around looking cool and doing nothing. Yes. Um, and that's what he does in the show. Yes. Um, so I don't understand why people say, oh, Boba is being so unlike himself. Why is he so bumbling? That, but that is the character. Exactly, exactly. I, I almost wish that Boba Fett season one was a Taika Waititi show where oh, it just leans oh. into the comedy of it yeah. of just like how does this guy get away with this and still manage <laughs> to you know retain his reputation um, you know do a, a Simon Peck at the right kind of thing oh, yes. know, with him yeah, yeah but would, then uh, when you bring in Robert Rodriguez you have a certain kind of expectation you know <laughs> Yeah. Um yeah. not to be too down on it, la, but like no, no. here are some things that I, I did like. Like I think um the book of Boba Fett um has great visuals. I think it's gorgeous. 100%. Uh, the, yeah. the dusty desert environments um are very, very nicely rendered. Yeah. The creature and character designs are badass. Yes, hundred um, percent. You know, with the practical costuming and the animatronic puppets. Mm-hmm. Uh the music by Ludwig Goranson is dope again. Yes. Um the show's deep dive, you know, all this background dressing like, into into um fleshing out Tatooine oh, as yeah. a as a place. The various cultures and gangs and politics and power dynamics of Tatooine is interesting. Um the Easter eggs to Star Wars, you know, um, Law ranging from the prequels to the cartoons to the comic books, and most importantly, we learned that Jawas can definitely fuck humans. Yep. Yeah. Um, are all interesting. <laughs> um, so that, that's that's what I liked. What I didn't like, as you all have already touched upon, is the story and character work, yeah. which is the beef patty in this burger. You know, like everything else is just like condiments and toppings and the buns, but the beef is rotten and and the burger will suck. Yeah. Uh, I I kept giving the show the benefit of the doubt. Um, 
thinking that like Mando and season two, mm-hmm. uh, like, like Mando season one and two, it's all leading somewhere. They'll tie everything up together by the end. Yeah, mm. you know, because in Mando season one and two, I had a similar fears in both seasons, four episodes in. Mm. So I was like, uh, but they've always like you know managed to like bring it all together in the end. Yeah, yeah. no, I think the story in terms of structure is a mess here. They never did bring it together. Yeah. Um. And, and don't get me started on how like you know Boba Fett himself, the main character of the show is. I mean, I think they did mean, attempt to try to bring it all into together in the end, lah. Yeah, tried, but la. like Bo- Boba is so poorly developed that you know you can't fathom why why being a Damio or protecting Tatooine is so important to him. Yeah. Mm. Um. The only two legitimately good episodes of the show did not feature Boba at all. Yeah. Um. Episodes five and six were the only two good episodes they showed. The climactic battle oh, was utter nonsense from a logic and tactical point of view. Yeah. On both uh, sides, Boba actually. Fett, yeah, Boba Fett is not only an incompetent crime lord, but also an incompetent strategist yeah. who gets saved time and again by other more interesting characters. If, mm. like I said, if you like Boba Fett, they're standing around looking cool and doing nothing and being a bumbling moron. I guess this is a show for you. <laughs> that's 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 what you all fall, fell in love with, right? Yeah. Um, I hated that the finale felt like Favreau and Filoni spent 99% of the script writing pew, 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 pew. Um, I don't think the show was a failure, but it certainly wasn't a triumph either, and my score will reflect that later on. Yeah. Um, let's, let's throw it back to Hardy again. Mm, like sure. any, fi- any, any final thoughts about the show before we give our Yeah, sure. I mean, one of the things that... Uh, look at it this way. Like, you introduce a character like Cat Bean. Mm. This crazy popular, uh, you know, and uh, placeholder, uh, Boba Fett in the Clone Wars. Yeah, you mm. know, and you bring him to to the live action thing. You know, you want him to have this great conflict with Boba Fett. Yeah, you know, and it just felt a bit flat. Like, yeah, yeah, you know, out of yeah. But anyway, that that was the issue. Like again, it ties back to the whole Boba Fett not being, um, like what he just said, lah. Uh. I I I like I said I still wasn't disappointed with it because it still was fun to me. It's just that after mm-hmm. I watched everything, I just felt that they could have done better. Just mm-hmm. because of what have what we've seen with Mandalorian season one and two, you know. Mm-hmm. And I know people we shouldn't. I mean, we have to compare those three. I mean, those other two uh, seasons just because of you know everything that has been happening in this world so far, lah. Mm-hmm. And yeah, um, a little disappointed, but I had a ton of fun still. So yeah, um, that's my final thoughts. Uh, what about you, Isa? Like final thoughts on it? Uh, I mean, given my, my mixed feelings about this, I think the one thing that I am happy for is the fact that this series still expands the law around the Mandalorian, mm. right? Mm. Two of the best episodes has pushed his narrative and Grogu's narrative forward with the inclusion of Ahsoka As- Tano and, and Luke, of course. Um, but it oh still rounds out more of Mandalorian lore, which I appreciate, right? Because that's what sure. I'm here for, yeah. essentially. There were some kind of highlight moments, uh, a lot of them not really having to do with both that. I think like Cat Bane showing up in the middle of Freetown with your classic <laughs> kind of like high noon shootout. Mm-hmm. Amazing stuff. Yeah. Um, you know, the Rancor was uh, interesting stuff. I love being able to revisit, like, Jabba's Palace in, like, all its HD 4K glory. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, you know, so, like, it does add to the world as a whole, but as a single piece of of, of TV, uh, it, it has a lot of weaknesses, for sure. 
Yeah, uh, which is why I'm rating this a 5 out of 10. Uh, what about you, Hardy? I'm a bit lenient on this, so it's about 6.5 for me. Okay, okay, I'm in the middle of the road here. I'm going to give it a 6 because we did get two episodes of Mandalorian and there were some cool things here and there. <laughs> oh, without those two episodes of Mandalorian, you can... I mean, I would have failed the show, yeah. but okay. Yeah. yeah. Um. Okay, yeah. So, I mean, I hope, I hope for more from the Obi-Wan series that's coming out in May from the upcoming Mando Season 3 from the Asuka Tano shows. Yep. You know, this has really um, soured what I thought was going to be a golden era for Star Wars post-Mandalorian. Mm. Uh, but we'll see how it goes. Mm. Like, one slight misstep doesn't make me lose faith. I think Filoni and Favreau have earned that much from me. Yeah. Um, and, and then from you guys, however. So I'm still looking forward to the rest of the show. Of shows. course, yeah. Uh, yeah, because primarily because like Obi-Wan and Tano and Mandalorian are much better characters than Boba <laughs> Fett. So I think... They can do better with that. Uh, let's move and it's on. Ewan to... McGregor coming back. Ewan McGregor is coming back. Exactly. You know, fantastic. Um, um. So is Hayden Christensen, by the way. Yeah. So I really confused. I just want to see where this goes. Really. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Definitely. So many questions hanging over that. But yeah. We'll, we'll see. It's just in a couple of months. So we'll see. exactly. Exactly. Me. Me. Yeah. Um. Let's move on though to HBO Max's The Peacemaker, which is um spun off from James Gunn's hilarious and very fun The Suicide Squad reboot movie. Um, Peacemaker once again stars John Cena as the bucket-headed hero, I guess. And, <laughs> and um, much like the movie, this HBO Max series is both a kind of gloriously goofy send-up to superhero narratives, uh, while somehow still being a sincere character study rolled into one. Um, any doubt that Peacemaker will have the same energy, style, and sense of humor that James Gunn brought to the Suicide Squad is dispelled within seconds of the show's opening credits, which is... Honestly, the best opening credits it ever is. created in the in the history of television. It is <laughs> it's an 80s style music video with the title character and his supporting cast performing a choreographed dance number um, on a neon lit stage mm -hmm. while Norwegian glam metal band Wigwam's song Do You Wanna Taste It shreds in the background. Mm -hmm. um, it is honestly the best part of the show and probably the best opening credits ever created in the history of the world in television. <laughs> um... I enjoyed it that much, you know. I think John Cena is great. He was one of the many amusing flavors in mm -hmm. Gunn's mocking take on Suicide Squad. And here he carries the whole ridiculous, <laughs> yet thrilling and sometimes sad affair. Mm. Um, he is a star of an unapologetic parody of superhero shows. Mm -hmm. In the movie, Peacemaker was an alt-right caricature. Um, and ultimately an antagonist to the more sympathetic squad members. Here he is given friends, including you know, a, a, a fellow homicidal vigilante called... <laughs> Vigilante. Um, <laughs> a homicidal vigilante called Vigilante. Uh, uh, a black ops team of spies who recruit Peacemaker to take down a mysterious threat to America called the Butterflies. Uh, he is given both context and surprising amount of pathos slash sympathy because we meet his father, um, Augie, who is starring uh, Robert Patrick, just going for it. Yeah. You know, he's playing this abusive white supremacist who loudly declares that he will have... Um, slit his son's throat at birth. Uh, Peacemaker is a trash person, but he was raised by a trash person mm. and raised to be the way he is. And I think the show makes him just repentant enough and self-aware enough for him to function as the anti-hero of an extremely odd story. Uh, yeah, okay. I'm beginning with all the stuff that I liked about it. Let's throw it to Hardy. Um, what do you think of Peacemaker? Alright, so again, John Cena fan, right? So a bit rose-tinted glasses. I like everything that John Cena's in. Even Marine <laughs> 5. <laughs> you know? Okay, so anyway... <laughs> I'm kidding, I'm kidding. But anyway, um, okay, so... This series for me started a bit slow. Like, um, for me, it didn't... 
it didn't really click until maybe like halfway through the season where I four or five yeah. yeah where I really enjoyed it. Mm. I felt that the back end of the season was a lot better than the front three episodes. I feel. Mm-hmm. Um, however, um, because a James Gunn's um jokes and all that can be a bit annoying, repetitive. Yeah, and like it sometimes uh overstays his welcome mm. at times. But then when the pace started um like um ramping up in the last couple of episodes, then it it became a lot more um bearable because the jokes have no time to stay. Like, mm. they had to, you know, press the action, press the story and all that stuff, continuing. Um, but my favourite joke is the the whole, like, you know, when, when Peacemaker said about the Operation Starfish, you know, where it was literally, mm-hmm. they fought a starfish. Is this going to be like, we're literally fighting butterflies? Like, <laughs> hey, he, he, was, he was sort of right. <laughs> yeah, so that was cool. Uh, yeah. yeah. However, um, I, again, I feel uh, Peacemaker, uh, however, succeeds where it brings the, the the character a lot more nuance, you know, with the history, the backstory, the and that um and pushing the narrative forward, mm. and also he it 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 is assisted by a, a bunch of really cool side characters. I feel mm. like not your traditional heroes or spies, you know, like you have Economist, which is one of my favorite like characters. You know, mm-hmm. he, and you can see that he, he actually got the team out of a lot of shit in the end. Mm-hmm. You know, uh, and I, 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 you know, the the whole like revelation at the end, you know, about his beard and all that. It was it was really really touching. Um, mm-hmm. I felt so so yeah. All these side characters again really brought uh, Peacemaker the series for me, um, to to something I really enjoyed and uh. And I have actually not much bad things to say about it, apart from what I just said about the, the jokes a bit stale at the beginning of, or just overrunning itself and that it was a bit slow at the beginning for me. Yeah, yeah. I think between the blood and guts and gore and the kind of slapstick James Gunn comedy and the musical direction uh, digressions, which uh, is very James Gunn as well, mm, if you've seen yes, any yes, of yes, his work. Correct. You know, Guardians and Suicide Like Square this time the focus that. is more on the glam rock, you know? Correct, yeah. And and there's a lot going on here. Um, but as as you said, Hadi, like um the jokes were very thin because James Gunn's superhero parody is essentially one joke yeah. replayed multiple times okay. per episode. Yes. Uh through all the episodes, and it gets nauseatingly tiresome after a while because he just has that one joke. And sometimes it feels like James Gunn thinks that adding a 70s song and the word fuck and the word fuck and the and the C word in every other sentence, he thinks that makes it Subversive. Mm-hmm. Um, if the Suicide Squad felt like Deadpool one, these episodes feel like Deadpool two, three, four, five, six, seven, and eight, all to diminishing returns. Mm. Like it's just doing the same thing over and over okay. again. And the jokes and silly geek humor gets less and less amusing with each repetition. Um, despite you know, like oh, I, I, it all seems very predictable. Like I I know what cameos is going to bring in. I know what song he's going to do. Mm-hmm. I know that each character is going to say like an f word and a c word in a particular sentence to, um, as some sort of punctuation to the joke. But I guess in a wildly oversaturated market for you know these tales of hyper muscular men shooting their way to justice, Peacemaker is still one of the fresher alternatives, though. Yeah. Um, but it is not a very high bar. La. It's not. Um. Yeah. Final thoughts before your rating, Hardy. Oh, um, again, I think John Cena, he has grown leaps and bounds as an actor. Like, just watching 
because again, you must understand that I have watched Marine One to okay, he was in Marine One to Three, so I've watched those early John Cena WWE studio movies. Okay, mm-hmm. all the way until now that he's playing Peacemaker, he is a legit actor now, mm-hmm. and I feel that um this was one of his best um acting performances lah. Mm. Yeah. I, I thought he was pretty good in Trainwreck. He was, I mean, and, but it was a very small role, ma. It wasn't a, 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 he wasn't the main character in that. Um, he was pretty good in Bumblebee. Yeah. Hell yes. Um, yeah, he was. That's a villain. Like that, like, you know. And, uh, um, Correct, yeah. F9. Yeah, sure. <laughs> F9 too. Family. Um, so, how, what's, what's your rating for this? Uh, I'm going to give this a uh, 7.5 for me. Alright, uh, this is another 5 out of 10 for me. Mm. Um, I won't be back for Season 2, so Season 2 will be a, a purely hardy thing. Sure. Uh, let's move on to The Legend of Vox Machina on Amazon Prime. Uh, it is an adult animated fantasy show mm-hmm. streaming on uh, Amazon, as I said, by Critical Role Productions. Uh, the first season consists of 12 episodes, and it's set in Exandria, which is a fictional world created by Matthew Mercer in 2012 for his personal D&D campaign. Which then launched as the actual play web series mm-hmm. Critical Role in 2015. Mm-hmm. Um, this show is based on that, and it depicts an all new story about the Vox Machina team uh, at D&D Level Seven on their first uh, "quote unquote" grown up mission, mm-hmm. uh, which occurs prior to Critical Role's first RPG show. Um, let's begin with Isa, uh, who is a big D&D fan as well. Um, what do you think of the Legend of Vox Machina? Oh man. Um... So I, 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 I don't think I started watching Critical Role as early as Hardy. Like Hardy, you you were fairly on board, right? Like you were watching yeah. season one stuff live, right? When they were like still on Greek and Sundry. Yeah, yeah. So mm. I um didn't hop onto season one until after like they were kind of done with that. I only uh started watching stuff live week to week, uh in, in campaign two. Uh, mm. So for me, like a lot of this was like kind of like quarantine binging time, uh finishing up season one and things like that. Um, so at that point already, I had a very good idea while I was catching up with season one, like what was going on, all the mm-hmm. memes were there, all the fan kind of things were there as well. All the, the moments, you know? Yeah, yeah. Like yeah. all of those highlights like stand out to you a lot more than the actual kind of nitty gritty of the sessions themselves. Okay. Yeah. Um, and the the main question that hangs over Legend of Vox Machina for me, right, is that this is an essentially a, a franchise for the fans. Right, mm. because um, they specifically picked out the Briarwoods arc um, mm-hmm. for season one, which is a fan favorite, and yep. perhaps in my personal opinion, one of the most interesting arcs that they've had in campaign one. Um, but because it takes place kind of like in media res, um, where we pick off, uh, pick up in the middle of kind of like the campaign, yeah. almost exactly right. It's almost exactly the middle. Yes, correct. Uh, it is very hard for like people who aren't fans of Critical Role, who haven't watched season one, to kind of like hop into that. I do think it has its merits. I have to say that the animation and the production and the voice acting is Top phenomenal. Watch. Yeah, absolutely phenomenal. Like they've spent the twelve million that they received from their their Kickstarter to really really good use, and then eventually matched by Amazon as well for season two. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. just like having standouts you've got doc, fucking Doctor Who there you've got fucking Azula there mm-hmm. like a whole like these voice actors have tapped very deep into their network contact this uh, yeah right like it's just <laughs> yeah. someone like Matt's just there sitting at his roller decks if he uses that and just like <laughs> 
who can I cast, right? Uh, who is also like a part of, part of the geekdom fandom. Um, it's like basically all the best sub-actors you have in anime. Yeah, exactly, <laughs> right? Like, it's the who's who of that particular community, yeah. which I think is amazing and which also brings like a very high standard um, of, of production and, and acting to the table. Mm-hmm. It is a joy to watch the cast members be able to voice their characters to the fullest extent possible. There's no mm. like over-the-table talking or anything of the sort. Yeah. Uh, I will say, Hadi, I don't know if you realize this, but like it took sure. me a while because Grog sounds different. Pike, so- well, Pike sounds the same, right? That's yeah, obviously yeah. Ashley Johnson. Mm-hmm. But even like Laura as Vex this time around like sounded a bit different. It's because like there's now post-production work being done on the Correct. voices as well. Yeah, yeah. And it sounds so much more like a character and not the voice actor playing that character. Agreed. Yeah. Um... My issue is that um, there are pacing problems, right? And it is the yeah. same problem that occurs in D&D, which is time compression, right? Yeah. You go into combat, everything, uh, you know, time is kind of like slowed down. In this particular case, for the Briarwood arc, uh, I think it's almost 400 hours worth of game yeah. time being compressed into 12 half an hour episodes. Yes. And it is Essentially incredibly that. difficult, I think, for anyone to adapt that kind of load, law load, into something that is so small. I mean, they had to choose, pick and choose like the best of the best of the best, you know what I yeah, mean? Yeah, yeah. But it, it, felt, it felt rushed, right? Like, it didn't feel as though... Um, I mean, obviously, it feels like an adaptation. That's that's oh, yeah. kind of the thing, you know. And I'm okay with that, but I'm not sure if everybody is. Because there are things like, you want to keep all the amazing, like, improvised lines from the game itself, right? Yeah, yeah, um, yeah. Because those are the highlights, those are what people remember, that's what the fans are looking out for. But that doesn't naturally lend itself to great dialogue. Uh, mm, okay. Yeah, I know what you mean. Yeah. So, like, it's a bit stumbling at times and a bit more forgivable for us who have watched the actual play show. Mm-hmm. Um, but I'm not sure if that necessarily is uh, meeting the standard that has been set by, you know, like Arcane and Castlevania and even like uh, Dota's Dragon's Blood, right? Like, the, the fantasy animated series benchmark right now is incredibly high. Yeah. And I feel without the backing of um the the these like five years and huge huge fan community legend of vox machina uh feels like a good show but perhaps not a great show from a non critter point of view yeah okay yeah that's a good that's a good way of um uh, but that being said the gore when it happens amazing yeah. uh the fight scenes feel so anime fucking love it Right, yeah, the comedic yeah. moments when it makes sense when what they're doing, great. But like pacing for me is the big problem, and the fact that um, the series cannot afford to set up uh, a proper introduction for the party and its members. What about sure. you, Hardy? Okay, okay. Uh, on my end, um, I agree with uh, nearly everything you said. Um, okay, so for me, just because of the you know, the heavy responsibility of bringing this kind of um, IP to life, right? Yeah. Um, you're gonna, you're, you're gonna miss certain things. Lah, For sure. You know, and I could see that, I, I, I think they did very well in changing what needed to be changed yeah. to, to suit this, uh, you know, to suit this new um, medium of yes. animation and all that. Lah. Mm-hmm. 
Mm-hmm. Uh, I had so much fun, uh, you know, trying to guess which are the voice actors, like, even though I know who they are. Like, <laughs> but like, oh my God, that is, that is Dave Tennant, you know? <laughs> yeah, it's insane, right? It's yeah, so it didn't cool. have that many lines in the end, but it still was so yeah. fun. Um, and again, you know, the animation really, really, really got me just because mm. I think this is a guy who did Young Justice. Yes. And uh, a bunch of other DC um, animated features. Yeah. Yeah, um, Mouse is an amazing animation studio. Yeah, so you if could you guys, tell. Yeah, you should yeah, check out exactly. Yeah, yeah. you Sorry, should continue. exactly hundred percent. And um, Titmouse, right? Yep, Titmouse. Yeah, and you had this sense of um, fan service that, as a critter, you enjoy. You know, absolutely. So like. I'm like, because you were there. Like, you were there. Like, I was there. Like, when, <laughs> when that happened, you know, the whole time, I was like, I was, I remember that, you know? And, like, yeah. and it's been like, what, five years since I watched season one? Yeah. I mean, uh, campaign one. Mm-hmm. So, like, a lot of the, like, I was there moments uh, throughout the entire uh, series for me was great. Um, so, that the fan service part and all that. So, I had so much fun watching it. I, you know, I, 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 I teared up at the, the, the part when Killer got her, her her powers and all mm, that, you know, yes. and because that was such an earned moment, and and you know, you know the history of how she had to get to that point, right? Yeah. Um, and then you felt the emotional connection. However, if I felt that if you did not watch Critical Role, or you you, you wouldn't have been as as uh, moved in that moment. Yeah. Because yeah. it's impossible. There's like four hundred hours, you know, that they culminate to that point. Yes, you know, and and that cannot be. No matter how much, uh, how well you summarize it and all that, you will never be able to experience that kind of like a uh, connection. Mm, you know, agreed. so I think yeah, so I think that's one of the things like. And also, campaign one. I mean, even though like campaign one was awesome and all that, this series is hamstrung by it also. Yes, you know yes. because you can't really move. You can't really. There's no real. Um, way you can adapt it to be better I mean yeah. you can be better a bit but like you know to make it great and all that a bit hard because all the story beats are already there yeah in that sense and yeah. so and also campaign one was the campaign where you had the most tropes oh, you know yeah. from, from from high fantasy from D&D and all that stuff yeah so all that came true again but again uh, so I feel that that was the only issue where mm. if you were a, a guy, uh, someone who has never seen Critical Role or, or barely knows anything about the IP, watching it for the first time, you might not have the the, the, the emotional resonance with it yeah. as much as someone, I mean, obviously, it is really fan service. Like, it's really for critters. Yeah. yeah. I mean, they raise the money for this. Like, that's why. So therefore, you know, you need to really pay homage to that. Uh, yeah. And people. And, and, and to put it in context, that at the end of the day, this was done for the fans. Yes, it um, was. For sure. But, Again, like we you would you just mentioned in Book of Boba Fett, right? Like there mm-hmm. is a whole bunch of lore that you need to understand to truly enjoy oh. or to at least understand where they're coming from. Yeah. Uh, and unlike the comic book series, which I don't think will take you four hundred hours of sitting through people no. roll dice, uh, it is a huge ask from any new comic hundred percent agree to the franchise. Yeah. Uh, I do think that there were a couple of scenes, uh, in particular mm. that managed to hit this amazing point whereby even if you didn't watch that, had a lot of emotional weight and resonance uh resonance yeah. uh in particular the hanging at the sun tree mm. um like the scanbo episode i yes. think like not having watched the original ones even those would hit but yeah because those, those are, are very universal kind of like um um journeys you know yeah yeah exactly right so all of those 
are few and far between, unfortunately, you know. And I'm I'm just constantly thinking about people who aren't critters, um, and how maybe this is their first kind of introduction to that, and how they would view it. Um, yeah. You know, and like little little things like all the romances seem very rushed. You know, yeah, like, like Kiki and and Vax, Vax and like yeah. the flirting, and even like uh Percy and Percy and Vax. Yeah, like all uh, we're talking about two Vax, by the way. Yeah, yeah Vax that, Allen, Vax uh, and Dan. Yeah, um, twin, they're twins. Um, yes, it's a whole thing that we won't get into for the review. <laughs> yeah. Maybe we'll do a whole episode just me and Hardy talking about it. <laughs> yeah, why not? Yeah, um, but yeah. So overall, like as both as a critter. Um, you know what, uh, and as you know, an objective reviewer, how would you mm-hmm, rate mm-hmm. the Legend of Mox Machina season one? If I was a critter, I would give this like a ten out of ten. <laughs> <laughs> but because you know, objectively and all that, I feel that it's more of a seven out of ten. Yeah, I'm gonna yeah. give it a just seven. because too much tropes, lah. Like it's yeah. it's very, and again, it's just because campaign one is the most tropey of all the campaigns. For sure, for sure. I mean, like, it was their first kind of D&D campaign. Yeah. Well, Pathfinder, then eventually D&D. Yeah, they went with D&D. Yeah. So, all your character types are very archetypical of high fantasy parties. Mm-hmm. And I understand that. Obviously, campaign 2 and campaign 3, like, we had vastly different parties. Very, very different, yeah. Uh, yeah. Likewise, I think both as a creator and for someone who, I mean, like, we watch so much of, of, of TV and stuff like that. As mm-hmm. a TV show... And also as a creator, I understand the limitations to both. I'm also going to give this a 7 out of 10. Nice. Uh, if you are a fan of Critical Role, I would highly encourage you to watch it because like, you know, we're all part of the community. If you've supported it and all that, like, it is a great Oh, piece trust of me, work. if you're a critter, you've already watched it, right? Yeah. Yeah. You, yes, exactly. I'm, I'm preaching to the wrong co- uh, <laughs> crowd, obviously. If you're new to this and you're wondering what the hype around Critical Role is about, there will be moments in which you will kind of understand that. Yeah, I'm not sure if it will necessarily make you want to go uh, watch like three-hour episodes every week. <laughs> yeah, like I think the total runtime for season one is close to a thousand hours or something like that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, which is insane, right? To actually say. Um, but I mean, it it's decent. It's it's pretty good for a TV show, right? Um, but it requires context, and that's okay. The we only uh, we we exaggerated. It's actually three hundred and seventy three hours. A uh, three hundred and seventy three hours, dude. Yeah. It's a yeah, lot. It's a lot. It's a lot. Um, yes. Thanks for fact checking me. Uh, yeah, but like it's a ton of stuff. Um, but yeah, if you're curious, go ahead and watch that. I think you will still have a good time, and then that might encourage you to go and do your own kind of like mm-hmm. background reading uh, slash watching and stuff like that. But go I enjoyed it. it overall, you know. And I'm still a big fan, and I'm still looking forward to what they're gonna do in season two, where we are probably gonna get the Coma fucking collective. dragons. Yeah, yeah, fun. Oh, cool. Um, both of you given your ratings already, right? What was it again? Seven. Seven. Yeah. yeah. Okay, okay. But as fans, it would be like 10 out of 10. Oh, hell yeah. yeah for sure, right? <laughs> just because it, 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 there are just these moments where it's just hair-standing moments. Like, oh my yeah. god, oh my god. I remember watching this. Mm, you yeah. know. Um, and it's amazing to see characters fleshed out in, in kind of like 3D, in not 3D necessarily, but like see them in action in for action, someone yeah. that you've invested so much time into already. Agreed. Um, it is, uh, it's kind of a special feeling. This is the best kind of fanfic. <laughs> yeah, it is. Essentially, yeah. It is because it's written by the <laughs> by the creators. Lah. Exactly. Yeah. 
Yes, um, awesome. Uh, thanks so much, Hadi, for joining us. No problem. Uh, Hadi is, you know, gonna hop off right now because the rest of the episode has nothing to do with him. Yeah. But he will be back next month to talk to us about the Batman. Oh, yeah. Uh, upload season two, Attack and Titan. of course the f- the final season of Attack on Titan, mm-hmm. which I think Hadi, you've caught up, right? Oh yeah, hell yeah. Okay, awesome, awesome. So we'll talk to you next month. Thanks so much, Hadi. No problem. Take care, man. All right. Bye. Bye. Uh, next up, I'll be delving into quick hits. We'll be talking about some of the movies and television shows that my co-hosts have not been able to watch. And firstly, mm-hmm. I'm going to delve into season two of Raised by Wolves, which is Ridley Scott's epic sci-fi show. Um, you know, it's much like season one. It, it still features breathtaking visuals and an expansive science fiction universe. Mm-hmm. But the heart of Raised by Wolves is is... You know, despite its expensive sci-fi setting, right, it's always been a very intimate thing. It explores the inner emotional world of mother and father who are two androids tasked by their atheist creators with the job of raising human children. Mm. The question of whether these machines are capable of actual emotional growth is one that haunts season two as viewers are yet again invited to watch mother and father wrestle with how they must negotiate their programmed identity Mm. as as protective parents with a world that often seems completely indifferent, if not outright hostile, to them and their children. While eager to consider the emotional complexity of man-made machines, Season 2 of Raised by Wolves continues to struggle, just like Season 1, with actual human characters that demonstrate similar depth. Mm -hmm. The only people who feel like real people are the androids. The people who do not feel like people are the actual people. (laughs) Yeah. If Season 1's primary focus was on the dangers of religious zealotry, Season 2 highlights the ways in which the atheist colonizers are just as cruel, small-minded, and inhumane. Human, you know, people are people in the end. Human nature is human nature. But the humans raised in Raised by Wolves often comes across as abstract ideas of what a person might be like rather than actual people with unique stories or experiences or motivations. It's an unfortunate flaw that keeps dragging what could otherwise have been a grand show because all other aspects of it are actually very, very good. You know, nevertheless, its its visual landscapes remain stunningly lush and haunting. They feel like paintings in a sci-fi art gallery. Um, and its plot pulls out some pretty decent surprises now and then. So it's still a good show overall, just not great. Uh, I'm this is a seven out of ten for me. Mm. Uh, next up, let's move on to Moonfall, which is uh, by Roland Emmerich, the king of terrible end of the world disaster films like The Day After Tomorrow yeah. and Twenty Twelve. He's back with a new one. Uh, Moonfall is about what would happen if the moon is knocked from its orbit by an unknown force and crashes into the Earth. Mm. Uh, really, it's that's a real story. It, it follows two astronauts and a conspiracy theorist working together to attempt to avert the disaster and discover that the moon is not what it seems? Question mark. Um, so let's get straight to the point. This is obviously a ludicrous movie. <sighs> it is yeah. absolutely, absolutely atrocious in terms of plot, story, <laughs> dialogue, and everything. But the thing is, right, it's so bad, it just might become a cult classic like The Room because it is so unintentionally stupidly funny that you might enjoy it. Um, this is a literal verbatim dialogue exchange that I lifted from the film. Okay. Where um, the main character is uh, the scientist. Uh, the, the guys are, are explaining to him like, the moon is crashing to the earth. Yeah. We're all about to die, etc., etc. You, you must help us fix this because you're the only scientist that can fix this. 
And then the scientist goes like, I have problems my own, man. Oh. Uh, and ha- and then Halle Berry says, problems bigger than the moon falling to the earth. And then he's just like, you know, oh, yeah, you know, like, you know, my wife and blah, blah, blah. It's like, yeah, that that's that kind of movie. Um, Next up, let's move on to Netflix's the take. Oh, sorry, I haven't given my rating. Yeah. It's a one out of ten. It's a one out of ten. One out of ten. But it has the potential to become a ten out of ten, like on repeated viewings. It's like, it's like that bad. Okay. okay. Uh, it's the yeah. The next one. Let's move on to uh, Netflix's <laughs> uh, new version of the Texas Chainsaw Massacre, which leaves little to the imagination. Mm-hmm. Um, that goes first of all for its violence, which is an orgy of splintered bones and lopped off limbs and mutilated faces. In the gore department, this is way more extreme than the original. Yeah. Um, the new chainsaw is more explicit in another respect as well. It takes all the subtext of the original film, mm-hmm. the class tension bubbling underneath, uh, all the screaming madness and murder, yeah. and kind of grinds all of that subtext into very blunt text. Um, call that like a real sign of changing times, because if grisliness in horror has fluctuated over the years, there's no mistaking the way that genre has increasingly made I guess, mince meat out of subtlety in the yeah. past decade. Sure. Um, think of the new Candyman, for example, which just uh, shamelessly exploits historical black suffering with little or no insightful commentary beyond gratu- gratuitously stating the obvious. Um, you know, movies like Get Out and Hereditary and stuff like that are few and far between. Um, this, this one features Leatherface killing Gen Z gentrifiers, um, and it's very, very stupid. Um, three out of ten for me. Uh, and that wraps it up for Quick Hits. That was the fast one. <laughs> That might be the quickest quick hits we've had in a while. Indeed, indeed. Just because like, I just didn't want to spend any time on it. Yeah. Um, but let's get to another big show here. Yeah. Uh, the third season of Demon Slayer. It's called the Entertainment District Arc. If you're wondering why is it season three and not season two, that's because season two is essentially a recreation of the movie split up into seven parts. Yeah. The movie was Mugen Train and becomes the Mugen Train arc in season two. Yes. Therefore, season three is an entirely new arc called the Entertainment District Arc. Aisa has recently caught all of it. Mm. Um, it's available on Netflix if you're wondering and if you want to catch up, it's there. What do you think of Demon Slayer, the entertainment district? Of? Oh, man. Uh, I've got mixed feelings about it. I've got mixed feelings yep. about it for sure. I, I feel like the strength of Demon Slayer has always kind of been the idea that pacing has been very good, right? Not just in terms of like the storytelling or the actual kind of visual pacing of it all, Right, I think most of us who have watched Demon Slayer will remember the amazing kind of like training montage, uh, you know, that Tanjiro goes through on the mountains and all of that, and how the two-year time compression that gets into that uh, mm-hmm. feels earned. It feels solid. It feels like, okay, this is a respectable amount of time to have spent in order for him to be at the beginner level that he is. Um, mm-hmm. While I feel the entertainment district is interesting in terms of the premise of where they are at and kind of like the background of, of you know, what this red light district is. Uh, it is plagued by very sudden, inexplicable and unearned power-ups, mm. uh, which to me feels very uncharacteristic of Demon Slayer, at least up to this point. Right, mm. like sure, I understand. Like Tanjiro is super frustrated with the fact that you know, um, he he couldn't do much with the train fight, or at least, or rather, the fight after the train, 
train fight um and and all of that but like honestly the five minute kind of training montage where we see these boys essentially become like buff men um in in a, a span of god knows how long necessarily but that didn't feel enough to explain how they went from struggling to being able to hold their own for long periods of time of what essentially is one of the the lowest ranking member of of the upper six, right? Like mm-hmm. that to me just didn't quite cut it. Uh, and it brings you out of the immersion of it. And as a fan who liked the fact that pacing has been great and that the power curve has been reasonable, felt very off to me. That being mm. said, these power-ups, however, have facilitated some amazing fights. Yeah. Um, and I think it's still up for the bit debate and quite early in the year to say that it might be the fight of the year. It could be. I mean, we, we have a couple of more things coming up um, that may change that. Um, mm-hmm. But again, I think the, like, I can't remember if we said this on air necessarily, but you were saying that one of the big appeals of um, Demon Slayer has been its visual aesthetic, especially when it comes mm. to fights, right? Um, yep. And that is something that is unique that no other shonen anime has had up till this point. Um, well, maybe not necessarily true, but like it is definitely the most prescient and obvious one at the moment. Mm. Uh, mm-hmm. So while all of that is still good and still great, um, some things just don't make sense. You know, yeah. uh, and I feel like there was a missed opportunity to talk a bit more about the social um, context of the entertainment district itself. Like they do mm-hmm. some of it, but it doesn't quite explain. No, explain is not the right word. It doesn't quite flesh it out in a way that feels fully substantial, right? Like it feels like a backdrop for which these fights takes place. Um, You know, but I don't quite remember much from the manga itself for this arc and probably for good reason as well. Mm -hmm. Uh, Yeah, it's, it's, it's okay. It's okay. You know, like great fights and if that's what you come for for Demon Slayer, then, you know, it continues to be good that way. I hope they resolve some things as we move on to the Sword District, I think. Um, Mm -hmm. And apparently that's going to be a lot better. But this did feel kind of like a filler filler season, uh, in some ways. Yeah, definitely, definitely. Um, it had it possessed all the shonen tropes that made me stop watching shonen back in secondary school. Yeah. Um, the random power ups, the lack of character development, the amazing fights that made little or no sense. Uh, I need I need to be like I'm not like a fight person or fight sequence person yeah. i'm a, like a character person so like if the fights have no like character beats in them yeah. it's or, or if the character beats make no sense in the fight <laughs> like you know um then it just really loses me like, like demon slayer particularly with mugen train and with the entertainment district arc, yeah. uh so in in essence the movie and two seasons have made me kind of break up with the show like yeah. um i think we've all been to that place whether you're, you're a guy or a girl you've like dated that extremely pretty person <laughs> and then when you break up suddenly you realize that like that extremely pretty person is very empty um or hollow uh, and all the quirks and charms that you were that you thought were cookie and charming are actually just really flaws yeah uh but you were blinded by the prettiness 
Um, in a sense, um, Demon Slayer is still a very pretty show, as you said. Like the the fight sequence is a very pretty sequence. Yeah. It's the most visually dazzling anime, in my opinion, uh, to, to come out this year. Uh, it still remains one of the most visually arresting uh, animes of all time. Mm-hmm. Um, it's just not enough for me. Yeah. So yeah. yeah. Um, how would how would you rate this season? Uh, oh, okay. So before I give my rating, right? Just uh, okay. Just uh, uh, taking from your point, one of the big things about Demon Slayer. Um, that that has always been interesting is Tanjiro's ability to kind of be sympathetic with um, his enemies, right? Like these demons, mm. he remembers the fact that they were humans and there were reasons that they became demons, right? And that mm. has always made it a bit more nuanced when it comes to the fight. However, this mm. time around, as great of a fight as it was, and I understand like the the creative decision to not interrupt the fight with a flashback, mm-hmm. which also means that we only got the demon's backstory at the end of the fight. And by that time, like that particular episode might have been the best episode of the season, character and writing wise. And it came okay. as too little, too late. You know, okay. because it is a phenomenally tragic backstory, right? Very great emotional work. But at that point in time, it doesn't matter anymore because the fight is over. They're dead, right? Um, and yeah, that that to me felt like, like uh, a bit of a travesty because from all the facts before, right, at any given point in time when you're fighting a demon, their backstory mm-hmm. comes about, you know, at the beginning or near the middle of a fight, which gives it more stakes, right? It's not yep. simply a matter of survival and, like, who, who is going to live and who is going to die. Whereas in yep. this particular season, that complete opposite of that took place. And I feel like that was very sad, right? Because it was a formula mm. that worked. It was a formula that gave some meat on top of all of the flesh. Uh, mm. But this time around, because they reverse those, <clears throat> they reverse the, the arrangement of that, um, you can immediately see how flawed it is when, you know, they don't take the time to set it up um, properly and give the fight stakes outside of a life and death situation. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So overall, I'm going to give this a 6.5. I still think mm-hmm. that there's a lot for fans here. I still think like it's very beautiful. The characters are still interesting if underdeveloped uh, for this time round. I don't think things are well earned. It is a very pretty fight scene and very well choreographed and very well animated. And the soundtrack continues to be bomb. Uh, mm. But yeah, it just didn't do enough for me this season and feels a bit like a filler epi- uh, filler um, season. Yeah, yeah. Um, it's a 5 out of 10 for me. Um, we'll, we'll see. Hopefully the next arc um, gets me back into it. Um, first off, uh, next up, I'm going to delve into the first part of the poll list. Yeah. And for the first part, I'll be talking about the return of Brian K. Vaughan and Fiona Staples' saga, which has been on hiatus or an intermission, as they call it, for three and a half years. The wait has been a saga of its own, but the wait is over because the franchise returned on January 26 with issue 55. I just recently read issue 56 as well. And to say there is excitement for the return is an understatement, uh, in the comics world at least. Um, mm-hmm. In some ways, though, the three-plus-year hiatus has only heightened interest in the already successful series. The hiatus was first announced in Sega 54 on July 25th, 2018. Um, I don't remember 2018. It was so long ago. Um, and I think a lot of people... Like, so much has happened. Like, there was, that was two years before the pandemic even. Yeah. Now. And while Sega's office has often taken multi-month breaks in between series arcs before, this one was framed as more substantial. Um, according to the written letter at the end of issue 54, mm-hmm. it said that they'll be away for at least for the next year. 
Uh, but it grew to be a lot more than that. And at the time, the office said that Sega was halfway at, at the halfway point, inferring that there were 50 more, 54 more issues to go uh, once they had time to recharge and revamp and everything. Yeah. I think for most comics, such a long pause would be a death sentence. Um, but for Sega, it's something different. Sega is the rare book that has garnered so much goodwill that those who put it down years ago are still overjoyed to pop it back open. It hasn't been forgotten and its impact has never stopped moving the industry forward. Mm. If you aren't familiar, Sega was inspired by Brian K. Bond's wife becoming pregnant with their second child. And this idea of parenthood mixed in with older ideas from the writer's childhood, like this is a postmodern sequel to Romeo and Juliet. And Sega cut to the core with an expressive and honest view of relationships between people and the uneasy transition to adulthood while set in a sci-fi fantasy intergalactic world where a guy with a TV head is one of the more normal things compared to some of the other stuff that happens. Yeah. Um, spoiler alert, Sega 54. Uh, this is a major spoiler. <laughs> so if you don't... If, because Sega 54 ended on a cliffhanger and yeah. I need to address that before we go to Sega 55. Yo, spoiler alert. Okay. Sega 54, all those years back now, left the series on a bleak note. Its main character, Marco... Yeah. One of, his, one of the two primary antagonists was murdered in a brutal scrap to save his daughter Hazel yeah. uh, and wife Elena and their motley crew of friends uh, from the clutches of a bounty hunter called The Will. Um, so yeah, uh, Marco is dead. Uh, it's a shocking note to temporarily conclude the series on and given the extended hiatus, fans have had to sit with that grief for close to four years. As Sega returned with its long-awaited issues 55 and 56, mm -hmm. it was hard to imagine just how it would handle both the textual cliffhanger of Marco's death and the wider meta text of the series' long absence. Mm. As it turns out, the story also jumps 3.5 years, uh, and Sega's focal characters have had time to deal and process their grief. Um, this is how an idea survives as Hazel's uh, ever present narration opens the issue. It grows and changes, often far beyond the intention of its creators. It's a very metatextual line for, for Hazel to deliver. Yeah. The surviving idea is intentionally readable in a number of ways, referring to Hazel herself, to Saga, to Marco's own legacy in a series, and in death. Um, even if Marco's death is not directly addressed, the shadow of it lingers throughout the issue, which I think is a better and more subtle way to, to handle it. Mm. It is informed in the way that we encounter both Hazel and Alana in three years later, uh, who they've become in their continuing life on the run as targets of both Marco and Elena's people, you know, um, and or planets. And, and Hazel's a little older, a little wiser, a little more streetwise here, and no longer quite the young, innocent girl we knew years ago. Um, she's still rebellious and not always willing to listen to her remaining parent. Mm -hmm. um, Elena now is trying to scrape together a career as a drug runner, um, has this fascinating push and pull between being more hardened in some ways in her isolation yeah. and softened in others as she is uh, bonding with her daughter. And she still yearns for a way to find peace, away from the ever-present conflict between Reef and Landfall. And you know, and now it's simply just a mother, not to Hazel, but to the similarly often son of Prince Robot uh, the Sixth, uh, Prince Robot the Fourth, um, Squire. Mm. The, the book continues its trademark breezy pace as it re-establishes a new status quo and also manages to throw in a terror attack, um, two police standoffs, an encounter with pirates flying around in, in a giant literal skull and crossbone ship. It's, you know, everything is very appreciated, very well written, uh, and at some points quite unnerving and scary. It moves very quickly. 
It doesn't dwell on the past. It doesn't see the need to recap what came before. In spite of its long time away, it trusts the readers that have been invested in this journey to know all of that enough. Mm. And yes, I'm still very invested. So glad to have Saga back. Uh, great return for one of the greatest comic books of all time. Probably Brian K. Vaughan's best work since Why the Last Man. <laughs> uh, next up, let's move it back to Aisa, where we'll be talking about Netflix's latest oh, yeah. South Korean hit. Um, it is drawing numbers, while not quite Squid Game-esque, yeah. is, is getting very close to Squid Game slash Money Heist level. Yeah. It is their new South Korean hit, All of Us Are Dead. It's a horror series based on a webtoon, and it focuses on a group of high school students trapped by zombies invading their school. What do you think of All of Us, is dead? All of us Are Dead? Oh my god. Okay, I... On the one hand, I don't understand the numbers that they're getting. This is not mm. a great show, right? Mm. On the other hand, I did watch the majority of the episodes. Um, yep. it, okay, so like at this point in time, All of Us Are Dead is riding on the coattails of some amazing zombie movies that we've gotten out of Korea. Um, mm. Most of which that we've actually reviewed, right? So anything from Train to Busan to the follow-up movie to uh, mm-hmm. what's the period one called again? Kingdom. Kingdom. Right, so all of these have like kind of paved the way for that. What we haven't really got is the high school version of that, and essentially, this is the attempt at giving us a zombie breakout focused on high school, high school students. Um, admittedly, yeah. not the most original idea for sure, right? Um, for anime fans, High School of the Dead is certainly a better, if somewhat hornier, version of this. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, uh, that that it is compelling but not for the right reasons i think yep. that uh all of us of that has amazing production value right i can only imagine the amount of money that's spent on like uh set and costume i mean well not really costume but like set design and just like uh, you know the quality of the cinematography and all of that is very very well done um mm-hmm. in addition to that right uh I'm guessing by now there's an entire industry of actors slash dancers slash uh, body double stand-in fillers who specialize in simply doing zombie body work. And mm. that continues to be amazing, right? Like, yep. it is astounding how good they are at portraying zombies. And that carries a lot of the movie. Like, a lot of the, the tension, a lot of the... Um, believability and credibility of the film as a zombie film is carried by mm. the people who play the zombies which is fascinating yes the cast however is okay right mm. i understand that some of them were cast because they're popular um and young and good looking um the plot is a pretty standard zombie plot the rules of the world makes absolutely no sense whatsoever, right? And, like, mm. for me, I'm a bit of a stickler about that. Like, at some point in time, whether through narration, although it's the easy way out, or an explication, also the easy way out, uh, or actually showing us what the rules of, like, turning into the zombie are, what their capabilities are, etc., etc., like, I think that's very important to establish in order to make sure that the audience doesn't feel cheated when you're watching a zombie movie. Uh, and here, it completely doesn't make any sense. I understand if you wanted to go from a point of view whereby we are learning about the zombies as the characters are learning about the zombies, but this just really doesn't cut it, right? Zombies can be defeated by wooden sliding doors. 
don't understand. Zombies can be defeated by a table between them. Don't understand, right? Uh, the virus is evolving such that there are sentient zombies that are kind of zombies, but not really zombies and might turn into zombies, but you're not really sure. And there are many variations of that within a single episode. Oh God, so messy. So, so messy. That being said, it is fun, I guess. I did binge like uh, the first good half of it in a single sitting with my family. Uh, but it is infuriating on so many levels. Like, let the nerd boy, like, law dump a bit, you know? Give me a bit of law dump about, oh, I've seen this movie, I've read this manga and all of that. Here's what we should do. Uh, yep. But none of that takes place. They take, like, an entire half an episode upon about, like, being stuck in a room and trying to build a toilet mm-hmm. in, like, the adjacent adjoined room. And then they, and the two episodes later, they have, like, private one-on-one conversations in the toilet room. Uh, it yep. doesn't make any sense whatsoever. Um, so, mm. if you are looking for a zombie fix, it's an okay series. Uh, okay. But I don't think it justifies just the sheer amount of views that it's getting because the drama isn't necessarily great. There's no great mystery about it as well. Uh, the yep. characters aren't particularly likable or hateable. Um, you know, but it's that com- it's the combination of like uh, Riverdale meets, you know, Train to Busan, I guess. Yeah, uh, yep. That is a strange and um, workable mix of things that people seem to like. So, mm-hmm. uh, color me surprised that it's as popular as it is. Uh, personally, I'm only going to give it a 5.5 out of 10. Interesting. Okay, okay, okay. Yeah. I think a, a 5 is, is more than a fair score. I was going to give it a 5 out of 10 as well. And you said everything I wanted to. Mm. Um, to cap the episode off, it's the second part of the poll list. Uh, we'll be talking about Madeline Miller's books, mm-hmm. um, which are subversive takes on each old Greek mythology. Yep. Um, Greek epics like Homer's, the Iliad, and the Odyssey are thousands of years old and have been told, retold, adapted, and interpreted a million different ways over the years. But I've personally never been more engaged or enthralled with Greek myths than with Madeline Miller's epic books, The Song of Achilles, number one, mm-hmm. and number two, Circe. Um, you see, before she became an author, Madeline Miller earned a master's in classical literature from Brown University. She then became a university professor specializing in Greek myths, and she realized that mon- many modern readers struggled to get into these rich stories because of the archaic and stilted style in which they were written in, Mm -hmm. as well as the archetypical nature of many of the characters. So she decided to retell the Iliad in The Song of Achilles and The Odyssey in Circe using an accessible contemporary writing style. But more than that, she chose to tell the stories from the unique perspectives of overlooked minor characters in order to unpack heretofore unseen layers to this millennial old stories. For example, the song of Achilles is told through the love story between Achilles, the champion warrior, and Patroclus, mm-hmm. his faithful companion and gay lover. The story matures over the backdrop of the Trojan War. The novel branches out to accommodate gods, men, war, and love. But the story is firmly in a POV of Patroclus, who is played out more like a... Um, playing out the story more like a tragic version of Call Me By Your Name, um, a journey of self-discovery and queer love that is burdened by the onset of a ridiculous war that neither of them care about over a woman that both of them don't know and don't care about. Mm-hmm. 
it is probably the only version of the Trojan War story that barely mentions the horse <laughs> and Helen. Um, this was more about humanizing these characters, but by, by putting us in their most intimate moments and exploring the societal restraints that stand in the way of their love. Um, gay sex or homosexuality was not taboo in Greek society. Mm-hmm. But what is taboo is for gay men to live together, to be, the, be husband and husband. Um, men are expected to produce heirs. Uh, and in, in that way, that, that is how their love is stunted. Yeah. It's a beautiful story of two friends who become inseparable lovers. Meanwhile, Circe is, retel- is the retelling of the witch goddess who lived on an isolated island and turned Odysseus's men into pigs and later became his companion. Um, the novel has its fair share of minor characters and subplots, but Circe holds the reign from the start to the end, and no one, not even Odysseus, steals the thunder. Mm. This is a very personal, very heartbreaking story of a black sheep young girl who wasn't accepted by her titan parents or siblings, she discovers her sorcerer's skills at the brink of despair, but the fates are cruel to her, leading her to banishment on the island of Aia. Here, Circe tames wild animals, tames a wild land, and perfects her occult craft. She is a goddess, but she doesn't have goddesses' powers, mm-hmm. so she needs magic and she needs witchcraft. She goes through stages of falling in love, being heartbroken, being furious, and being a mother, in addition to becoming one of the world's most feared witches. It is no secret that the myths of old are partial to men. Yeah. Men are glorified, their victories are praised, while women either adorn the role of the perfect companion and or are cast as villains. Madeline gives new voice to Cersei. In the myths, she is a vengeful, lovelorn witch who bows down to Odysseus. But by giving Cersei control over her own narrative, Miller fully fleshes her out, showing us her life as she experienced it. Mm-hmm. It is a feminist perspective that totally turns the Odyssey's sexual metaphors on its head and becomes an aching personal account of gender inequality and misogyny in ancient Greek society, as well as a cautionary tale of the vanity and hubris of men and gods. The Song of Achilles spends decades, Circe spends millennia. Mm. Both are wide-spanning epic novels that will sweep you off your feet immerse you into the inner lives of characters in a way that Homeric poems never quite did because they were so broad and abstract. This character-driven contemporary approach adds new layers to very old myths in a style that modern readers, especially young ones, will certainly appreciate. Um, Both books are glorious. I mean, The Song of Achilles is not quite as good as Cersei, um, but it is an 8 out of 10 and 10 out of 10 respectively. So both both are incredible books. Okay. Yeah. Okay. I, I mean, I've been I've been reading um, Stephen Fry's Myths and the second book Heroes recently, uh, mm. and of course, you've talked extensively to me off air about Madeline Miller and her books, right? Which mm-hmm. of the two books would you say I should start on first? Um, you should probably start with the Song of Achilles first. Okay. Okay. Um, primarily because um, it's not important. Uh, both are can be standalone, but yeah. there are plot elements in the Song of Achilles that, um, you know, there are ca- they mention what happened to characters after the first book. I see. Okay. Okay. Yeah. 
yeah so it, it there's almost a pseudo sequelness to it it's not important like if you're if you haven't read the song of achilles you won't care about these mentions like. yeah but it adds a bit more weight like when you when you find out what happened after the song of achilles through the perspective of cersei okay cool yeah i it's a it's a shared universe kind of thing interesting i mean well technically it was a shared universe it is yeah, <laughs> yeah. so um yeah so i've been on a bit of a binge um that way but obviously like fry's books aren't you know, written in the same way. Um, mm. Yeah, okay, okay. I guess it's time to go pick up some Madeline Miller books at the library. Definitely. For me. Yeah, yes. Looking forward to it. Uh, definitely should. It's available. If you're in Singapore, it's available at the National Library, both as ebooks and both as physical books. I got the physical copies, uh, but ebooks are available as well. Uh, we'll be back next month to talk about not just any Batman. The... the Batman, <laughs> um, Matt Reeves's uh, very David Fincher-esque take on Bruce Wayne, the Cape Crusader. Yeah. Plus, um, me and Hardy, as I mentioned, will be talking about season two of Upload, and we'll all be talking about the final season of Attack on Titan. Um, plus, The Boys is an animated um, Star Wars Visions-esque uh-huh. spin-off called <laughs> Diabolical, which looks interesting. Yeah. Um, for quick hits, I'll be talking about Pixar's new film, Turning Red, which will be streaming on Disney Plus. I'll be talking about DMZ, which is based on a comic book. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I'll be talking about Human Resources, which is a spin-off of uh, Big Mouth. Um, Isa will be back with Anime Corner, um, detailing all of the shows that he's seen over the past season, yep. particularly highlighting the best ones. And if he has time, he'll be catching Jujutsu Kaisen Zero, the film. Uh, and finally, for the pool list, I'll be talking about 13 Stories, which is a horror novel I just recently read back in December. Um, what are your highlights for next month? What are you most eager to talk about? Ooh, I, I think Batman has to be it, right? Like, a lot of yep. brahaha about Robert Pattinson. And as mm-hmm. we get closer to it dropping, a lot of high praise as well. Um, mm-hmm. So, uh, yeah, I'm really, really curious as to what that's about. I'm really excited to see... Patterson flex on his haters. Mm-hmm. Um, that is it. I, I think our Attack on Titan discussion is also going to be fairly interesting, right? Because mm. um, I think we all kind of got into it when it first came out. Almost all of us dropped yep. off and then you you recently reviewed um, the final season for... Part 2, yeah. yeah. For, for, was it Popwire? Uh, Enemy. Oh, yes. Enemy. So, if you guys want to go check out uh, Hidze's article on that, please go ahead and, and see that. Mm-hmm. I, I believe we have it up on our socials. Yep, uh, on our socials. and Or you can just go to enemy.com uh, slash Asia. Yeah, yeah. Go and check that yep. out if you're curious <clears throat> and you can't wait for, to, you know, wait for us to release the episode so we can kind of talk about it. Um, Definitely. But yeah, a couple of interesting picks for Anime Corner. I'm not going to spoil it, I guess. Like, uh, But it is the first time I'm going to... My highest recommended anime is very out of character for me. Uh, oh, wow. Okay. Yeah, so we shall see that. I mean, not not quite in the way that I said the same thing with Odd Taxi. Uh, it's mm. not Odd Taxi level, guys. I'm sorry to disappoint you. It's a little dry this season. But my top pick is going to be a little out of character from what I usually recommend. Um, okay, okay. Yeah, so definitely looking forward to that. Um, we'll see where it goes. I'm super excited for when we catch the Batman. And uh, mm-hmm. fingers crossed, I think DC needs a win. And I'm hoping this is it. Uh, yep. Yeah, so yeah, we'll see how it goes. <laughs> awesome, guys. Uh, yep, we'll be back in a, in a few weeks' time. So till then, this has been Hit Zero. I'm Isa. Uh, goodbye, guys. Ciao.